The following is a quarantine recording presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we're loving on, and what we're hating on, what we might be and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, custom-designed press-on nails, we cover it all. We are recording from Oakland, California, the center of the known universe, where we are dealing with Rona and rebellion. It's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays. But we're going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So tune in, tell a friend, and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99, because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. She got the smile, the style, and finesse Compounded with a blessed, profound intellect Select few have ever seen the butt naked And they too want to see the rep protected Our guest this week has been an anti-violence activist since she was 16 years old. She's the founder and CEO of Free From, a national organization on a mission to create pathways to financial security and long-term safety with and for survivors of gender-based violence. Her astrologer wife was already a guest on the pod, so go back and listen to Chani Nicholas's episode. Chani and I already talked about what a boss she is, and the boss in question is Sonia Passi. Welcome, Sonia. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have you. (laughs) I've been talking about this since we did the pod with Chani, and I was like, you know, actually, I want Sonia on the pod. And we made it happen. So thank you for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It's very rare that hers and my work worlds collide, but I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, I'm glad that we could be a connector. (laughs) (laughs) So we ask every single guest, uh, because obviously we're in the midst of pandemic realness. Tell us about what your quarantine life has been like. Are you developing any unique habits live and direct for Miss Rona? (laughs) This is the first year of my life that I have truly learned what self-care is, I think. Mm. I'm usually traveling like two-thirds of the month. Um, And this year, I my last trip, I got back to LA like the day before shelter in place here. And it's something about not moving, being home, having like a home routine that has almost created space for me to not have any more excuses, you know? 
All of these years, it's been, well, I'm so tired because I was traveling or, well, because I was traveling, now I've got to work all night on this thing. So I am one of the few people who are incredibly privileged in this time to be healthy and safe and not an essential worker and financially secure and job secure. And I don't take that for granted. And what it has really allowed me is the time to realize how like fast off the deep end I was going in terms of taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm I've I'm learning a lot and it's it's not as easy as I thought. Isn't that funny that, you know, with the people that we love, of course, we're telling them, you've got to slow down, you've got to take care of yourself, build your resilience. And then when it comes to us, we're like, I'll do that later. I'll do that later. I'm totally the same way and totally can relate. I feel you on the slowing down piece. And I know that slowing down and being sheltered in place, or at least just not moving as much, um, sometimes means that we are able to kind of express in a different way or things just come out. So for me, when the, when everything was going on with the Rona in the beginning, I started to notice these like particularities about myself, <laughs> things I like needed to get done every day. So for me, it was about a diffuser. Every single morning, mm. I had to put some oils in a diffuser or my day was going to be shot. Are you developing any like guilty pleasures during this oh, yes. like little things you do that just make you feel kind of normal again? Oh yes. And then I'm going to tell you my guilty pleasure and you're going to be like, "Ah, uh, I see you're new to this." Jenny <laughs> <laughs> and I No judgment here. Of course. Jenny <laughs> and I live about 20 minutes from the beach here in LA and we have started going maybe three to four mornings a week to the beach. And so, you know, we're not... uh, Well, the first guilty pleasure is I haven't set an alarm clock since March, which is like the first time since school. Um, But now we're going like maybe around 8, 8.30 to the beach. We go for a walk. It's very socially distanced. It's very breezy. And I have set my calendar from now until the end of the year that no one is allowed to schedule me calls or meetings before 11 to give me that time, which is bananas. That's excellent. Yeah. I need to take a page from your book. What are we doing here? <laughs> what am I doing? I'm on the phone at eight o'clock in the morning as if like things are normal. And I'm like, hey, we actually don't have that much to talk about at 8 a.m. I should be doing what you're doing. Thank you for the tip. I asked Chani this question, but it's only fair that I ask you too. What is it like being partnered with a badass? I mean, look, do y'all just like pass each other badass juice back and forth in the morning like hi good morning babe here's some badass tea would you like some (laughs) or then maybe Chani says you oh yes honey I'd love some badass tea and I'm making a bagel for badasses would you like one like is that the conversation that y'all are having that's exactly what it's like (laughs) exchanging badass is that what (laughs) I will say we have a very symbiotic tea ritual in the morning where we like make big a uh, flask of tea in the morning that will keep us both going through the day. So maybe there's something in the tea. But it's incredible to be married to Jenny Nicholas. 
And I think what I love the most about her and therefore our relationship is she's always willing to do the work, you know, mm. whether that's mm-hmm. personal or it's, you know, within the business or it's within our relationship. There's never a point where one of us is disassociating or refusing to see what the thing is or skirting around the issue. And that makes staying kind of constantly focused on what's right and what's fair and what's just and what's ultimately going to be the most beneficial for both of us and our community that much easier. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. This is amazing. (laughs) This is amazing. First of all, I love you both so much. Second of all, everybody who's listening should know they throw a badass party. Oh. And third of all, I love how you all talk about each other. Because when Tani was on the show, she was just like gushing about you. Oh, God. How long do we have? I mean, okay. I, you know, she is one of the wisest, most capable, grounded humans I've ever met. And I was like, oh, my I heard God, she told cry. the story of me in my house coat. It was amazing. <laughs> It was amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing. You know, when you and I first met, I believe we were hanging out in your house. It was like a holiday party. They had really delicious foods. And I was getting to know you and we were chitty chatting. And I was like, yeah, tell me about what you, you know, tell me what you do. And sometimes I admit, I ask people that question and I'm waiting to have that awkward silence where it's like, (laughs) okay, right? (laughs) And with you, I was like, I want to keep talking to you Mm. all night. You said something to me right off the jump that really just like threw me into a whole other universe, which was healing justice is economic justice. And then shortly thereafter, I got a beautiful sweatshirt with the same (laughs) slogan on the front of it. So I'm going to ask you about that. But first, before I do, I need to know how you got to be who you are. You said that you've been doing work with survivors of domestic violence since you were 16 years old. I also started organizing at a very young age, 12. I started talking to people about sex and intimacy and pleasure. And my mom was like, girl, what is you doing? (laughs) So I would like to hear your story. How did you get involved at such a young age and why? And how has that gotten you to where you are today? Yeah. So like everybody, I grew up in and around lots of different kinds of abuse. And also like everybody, at least at that point, I am hoping that it's changing for future generations. I didn't have words for it. But at the age of 16, I thought I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. And so I started an Amnesty International group at my high school. I grew up in the UK. And so Amnesty is a much, Amnesty in the UK is like the ACLU here. Mm -hmm. And they send you all the materials and you kind of do letter writing campaigns and other campaigns around the issue. Their campaign that year was Global Violence Against Women. And I remember I'm reading the materials. First page, it says one in three women in the world will experience intimate partner violence. I just remember being both not shocked at all and also floored that this was not the front page of every single newspaper every single day. 
And it was very obvious to me as a 16-year-old that when you're talking about numbers like that and you're talking about a global scale, you're talking about a structural problem. Mm -hmm. But everyone always talked about intimate partner violence like it was a personal thing, like it was the result of bad choices, bad luck. And very instantaneously, it became my issue I, that year and subsequent years, would host awareness weeks each year uh, on the issue of intimate partner violence. I then went off to college and was doing work around it there. And by the time I applied to go to law school, my entire personal statement was about ending intimate partner violence. And I had the good fortune, it sounds you did too, of learning very early in life exactly what it was I was supposed to spend my life doing. Oh my God. So often... The work that we do is personal to us um, in ways that people cannot imagine, right? Yeah. Like people who I have met who are deeply passionate about the work that they do, it comes from a place of like, this helped me make sense of the world or this saved my life. I know for myself, when I started doing, at that time, it was reproductive rights work and comprehensive sex health education, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? All that big mouthful of nonsense, which is basically like helping people make their own fucking choices about what's good for them yeah. and breaking through the nonsense of messages about our bodies and desire and intimacy that are in and of themselves violent and harmful. Mm -hmm. And to be so young and doing that work, it's like you also come into your own as a person. So I'm wondering for you, Sonia, is there a moment that you can remember in your teen years, right, when you had started to do this work, where you started to understand more about yourself, who you were, and why this was the right work for you? Yeah, it's funny because when I talk to friends from high school now, they say... This was so obvious back then, and it wasn't obvious to me. I think it was my mid to late 20s when I really got to heal and start to put what felt like disparate pieces of my life into the puzzle in a way that made sense. And for so long, so from 16 to let's say 26, I was doing this work with all of my being without realizing how it had saved me and how personal it was. And what I did do as a teen was I was always raising money. I was always raising money, particularly for women's shelters, because that's, of course, you know, it was it's still, but it was even more gendered back then. And I was like the best fundraiser the school had ever seen. And I remember when I graduated, the headmistress told me that I had raised more money in my time at the school than the school raised each year. Wow. And so my friends now are like, you were prepping to be <laughs> the CEO of a nonprofit. That's right. And so I was building the skills and I was doing the work, but you know, you don't come to consciousness about something until you're ready to. I didn't fully get that I was queer until it was safe for me to. I knew it, but I didn't know it. And I think in a lot of ways, this was the same. When your work is this intimate, it's like, it, it doesn't come till you're ready. I love that you said that.
you triggered a memory in me of being in, I think I was in ninth grade and I had been doing sex ed work maybe since, I don't know, seventh grade. And there was a moment for me in a class, sex ed class, where a teacher was talking with us about intimacy between bodies that had similar parts. And she broke it down so simply. She just said, people who share the same bodies know their bodies so well. So wouldn't you think that an interaction between two people, right, who like know themselves well would be incredibly amazing? And I was like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. I see myself. Mm -hmm. And I had been doing this work for a while, but it was the first time that somebody had just brought me into a place where I could say, I think that's me, homie. I do understand how that works. Yeah. (laughs) So let me ask you a question. I know for myself, I started doing this work in the context and framework of a large NGO. So mine wasn't Amnesty International. Mine was Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. And there was a point where I was like... Actually, this framework doesn't totally work for me and for the people who I'm working with. Did you have, and this isn't no shade on amnesty, but did you have this kind of moment? Because actually your frameworks for your organization are quite expansive and they're very different than, I don't know if there's like a DV Inc., you know, the way there's like a gay Inc. or a reproductive rights Inc. Was there a moment where you were like, hmm, this actually needs more layers here as you were building free from. I think what you're asking me is, am I consciously not participating in the nonprofit industrial complex? <laughs> and I think my, that's a fair yeah, question. Yeah. <laughs> and my answer is very much so. Um, this actually isn't the first nonprofit that I've started. I, f- I started my first when I was a second year in law school at Berkeley. And when I started that organization, it was more about here's a problem. And how do we solve it? And I remember going to five or six or seven big Bay Area DV orgs and saying, here's a project. Would you house it within your org? And they all said no. They were not interested. And so that's, that's why I ended up turning it into a nonprofit of its own. And I say that because I think most people want to do the right thing and they want to help. Mm-hmm. That does not always mean you need to start a new nonprofit. And there are so many organizations that are doing overlapping work with similar strategies, both raising money, both growing their payroll, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I always encourage people that come to me with a good idea to first see if someone else is doing that. And if they are, can you support them? But I have come like a long way in both my own maturity, but also how I think about where Free From sits. And I very much used to be that person who said the movement is messed up and uh, we want to do something different. I'm always constantly trying to understand why the way that we approach IPV is the way that we approach IPV. And for people that don't know, we take a structural problem, but we address it with crisis intervention. And so we don't recognize you as a survivor until you leave We judge you if you don't leave. And once you leave, we, 
the United States of America, we give you temporary crisis support. So a couple of days or weeks in a shelter, a restraining order, access to public assistance. And then essentially what we say is, well, you got yourself into this, now you have to get yourself out. And we pay no mind to the fact that survivors are dealing with the consequences of problems created by our society. We pay no mind to how expensive healing is. Healing justice is economic justice. And we have no understanding of how you solve structural problems and the fact that they take a continuum of support. I have gone from blaming the movement for this to understanding that the movement is a product of the patriarchy that we live in. That's right. I remember reading a book about how the movement started. And the movement started as a grassroots movement. It was people in their communities gathering with telephones, like landlines, and taking calls from people who were in crisis. And they had basically like scoped out the three mile radius of their neighborhood, who had an extra bed, who had a back house, who had a couch. And they were supporting people in that way. And then the Violence Against Women Act happened. And what was a grassroots movement became federalized and paternalized. And so all of what has happened from then to now is a product of that. And I always say Free From will never take government funding because that's where innovation goes to die. Mm-hmm. But we have an intimate partner violence movement that is, first of all, underfunded and under-resourced, but the funding that it does have is a result of federal funding. And then in the context of defunding the police and what it would really take to have a survivor-centered movement, 85% of all federal funding to address intimate partner violence goes to law enforcement. Wow. Wow. So the setup is what it is. The movement was built within that. We are very much intentionally trying to work on the on the periphery for two reasons. One, to not get sucked into the patriarchy, mm-hmm. but also because intimate partner violence is a societal problem it, and a structural problem. It cannot be the work of a small number of nonprofit organizations to solve. And so what we're trying to do as we're on the, as we're on the periphery is partner with other institutions that need, need to take their part of the responsibility. Banks, employers, health insurance companies, federal government, state government, city government, etc., etc. How effective is law enforcement as it relates to addressing intimate partner violence? It's such an important question because I think even people who at a basic level, agree with defund the police, have a blockage when it comes to intimate partner violence because we assume that police are effective in dealing with this particular problem. But here's some stats to kind of set the framework. 80% of survivors are afraid to call the police in the first place. And of those that do, 88% report that police sometimes or often either didn't believe them or blamed them for the violence. Wow. And so what you're seeing is most survivors don't call the police. When they do, they're often deemed culpable themselves. Beyond that, 
we also have to think about what are the consequences of the police becoming involved. And I read a study recently that I will admit shook me to my core. It was a study of 1,100 police cases. And they found that for black survivors of intimate partners violence specifically, they were 98% more likely to die prematurely if their harm doer was arrested versus if their harm doer was given a police warning. Mm-hmm. And that's specific to black survivors, not white survivors. And I think that was as far as they went in, in determining um, race. But it wasn't that because their harm doers were arrested, then they made more trouble and more violence for them. Heart disease was actually the leading cause of death among those survivors. And what it speaks to is how much more stress comes from police being involved, comes from loved ones being incarcerated, comes from all of a sudden becoming a single parent with only one source of income. And beyond just that study that I shared, there's all of these stories of survivors having then child protective services called and the kid the kids if any being taken out of the home because there was intimate partner violence because the police got involved or those criminal charges then triggering immigration and deportation proceedings for the whole family there's such a negative ripple effect that happens when the police are involved and of course what we cannot forget is that Police abuse their power and commit sexual and intimate partner violence as well. And so it's important to not forget that often the people that are there to, to, for lack of a better word, save us, to keep us safe, are often the people that are hurting us. That is no news to anyone by this point in 2020. But it's also very much true within the context of intimate partner violence. And I know that the movement for Black Lives has been talking about this so much, which is there are all of these different intersecting forms of structural violence. Gender-based violence is very much one of those. And to try and carve it out as something that should be dealt with differently, that should be dealt with separately, that is immune to police police harm and police brutality is um, very misguided, but also not listening to survivors. That makes a ton of sense. Let's dive into understanding more about the relationship between healing justice and economic justice. I think you're right that people, lots of people, I think, think about many different forms of violence, actually, as um, dysfunction between two people, as opposed to a convergence of systemic factors that create the conditions for harm to occur and that replicate those conditions over and over again, blocking the ability for people to access restoration um, and access healing. So if you could help Break that down for people. Like, what is the relationship between these two necessary pillars of what it means to live interdependently? When we think about intimate partner violence, we think about, you know, someone is 
harmed, usually physically in our minds. They grab the keys, they run. And so when we think about intimate partner violence, we're thinking about those days and weeks. Mm -hmm. When survivors are thinking about intimate partner violence, they're thinking about months and years and generations. And it is such a privilege to be able to heal. It is so expensive to be able to heal. And anyone who's ever grown up in a violent home knows that as a child growing up in that, you don't even get in touch with the need to heal until you yourself are in a safe home. And so as I think about, people keep talking to me about prevention within the context of IPV, Preventing violence means investing in survivors. It means making healing possible. And for healing to be possible, you have to be able to afford it. The CDC estimates that intimate partner violence will cost a female survivor, and of course they only have male and female, $104,000. Wow. So one, we know it's so expensive to experience violence. Then on top of that, economic abuse happens in 99% of cases of intimate partner violence. So you can assume that if someone is experiencing physical or psychological or sexual harm in that context, they're also experiencing economic harm, which can look like anything from not being allowed to work to not having access to your bank accounts. And we estimate that there are about 28.5 million survivors in the U.S., that are underbanked because they don't have safe access to their bank accounts. And so when you put all that together, how expensive it is to experience harm coupled with what the impact of economic abuse is, you're talking about getting to a place of safety with no job, no cash, maybe a damaged credit score, and no fallback system because that's how intimate partner violence thrives. How do you do that? How do you... How do you even get to a place of safety, let alone create the conditions for that generational healing? And so it's, it's so important that we understand this issue as an economic issue. The economic abuse that happens within intimate partner violence is just one small piece of the economic abuse of our society. We live in a society where you were told at the beginning of the year how many days you're allowed to be sick for. Uh And if you're sick for more days than your 12 days or whatever you get, you must take unpaid leave. Our systems are committing economic abuse with free reign and with a basic societal understanding of that's just how things are. And so, of course, the conditions are ripe for economic abuse to happen within a home, within parents and children, or within a relationship. You just literally sent me back all the way to my own upbringing, and then, of course, all the way forward to being an adult and supporting people who I know who are survivors and still surviving intimate partner violence, and this piece about Freedom. The name of your organization makes so much sense to me, (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, I mean, I think in the popular culture sense of things, we could think about this in relationship to somebody like Tina Turner. And in the movie, right, where she 
she keeps going back. She's an, she's an international star, but she's in a deeply violent relationship. And part of how that is able to happen is that he controls pretty much every aspect of her life, including mm-hmm. her finances. And when she finally is able to break free through a painful, ugly court process, and obviously this is all dramatized because the actual story is way worse than this. She walks away from this moment and says, I want my name. Her name is actually her economic foundation, as well as her sense of who she is. And I think that oftentimes people don't catch that Mm -hmm. in the movie, What's Love Got to Do With It, because they just think she's being a powerful ass Black woman, which she is. But she's not just saying my name. She's like, my name. My name is my moneymaker. It is the economic engine that I have and I need access to. Yeah. This shit is deep. I have to talk about the fucking election because that's what's happening this year. And also, survivors have been a really interesting part of our political discourse over the last few months. I don't even want to say survivors have been a part of this discourse. I want to say people have been talking about survivors and talking around survivors, but survivors are not necessarily speaking for themselves. I'm wondering how the survivors that you're working with right now, how folks are looking at this political moment in this election season, if if folks are sharing with you, and are there particular needs that survivors must see on the national political agenda in order for survivors to become a powerful political force in this country? Yeah, it's such a great question. At the beginning of COVID, Free From launched a mutual aid fund for survivors. And we gave out grants of $250 cash to about 1,100 survivors. And we really just set out to get cash to survivors. It was a very simple application. You submitted it, and then we said, if you have any time and you would like to, would you consider answering these questions? And in this survey, we asked survivors what their situation was like pre-COVID, how COVID has made it worse, and what they need and want going forward. And the number one thing that survivors said that they need is cash to spend as they want. And I'm thinking about a story of someone who shared what they had spent their $250 on. And they said they had fixed their car. And why fixing their car was important was because it was the only way for them to get their kid to their harm doer for their shared custody. And that their harm doer had said, if you don't drop the kid off on time, I'm taking the kid and I'm, you're going to have to fight me for, for custody. $250 was all it took for her to keep custody of her kid and not then have 60 plus thousand dollars in legal fees. The second thing that survivors said they needed was utility bill relief. And the third was credit and debt relief. And the fourth was safe employment. Mm. And it's very hard to see that. And one, pretend that the way that we are addressing intimate partner violence right now is survivor-centered. And two, that we don't have to make major radical changes in the way that the movement is funded and what the funding goes to. And so we actually, we just released that report last week on Thursday 
we've got calls scheduled with Maxine Waters' office, Nancy Pelosi's mm. office, because I think that this change now needs to come from the top. We need to be understanding at a federal level that cash to survivors to spend as they need could actually be a much more cost-effective way to solve this problem than waiting until someone is homeless to step in and offer some temporary support. This is not mind-blowing, but it's (laughs) mind-blowing. One, that we have a political system that is so rigid when really it's it's not that complicated to figure out how to actually be a representative democracy. Secondly here, I just want to say thank you. Um, This work is so deeply important. It's so deeply important to the project of building the kind of society that is free from violence, but that is also um, free from patriarchy. And I'll just say that we love, love, love the work that you're doing. And please share with us the link to the report. We want to put it up on our socials. Thank you. And of course, we're going to have to have you back sometimes. You (laughs) can tell us how things went. But in this political season, when there are so many people who feel left out and left behind, and they don't just feel that way, they actually are. Um, It's so deeply important to keep lifting up these very concrete survivor-centered solutions that actually would make a lot of people's lives better. Not just survivors, but so many people in this country. And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things we just ain't gonna do this week. Number one, White folks trying to win by cheating. I'm just getting tired of this shit at this point. The U.S. Postal Service is under attack, y'all. Legit. And your president is the leading force behind it. Now, he says he's worried about fraud, which is weird because he is a fraud. So I'm unclear about how he would be worried about himself. Not to mention, I think what he's actually worried about is that maybe he's just not as popular in this country as he is to himself. But anyway, check out our socials to see what you can do about the ongoing mess that is your president and his impact on, well, basically everything. Other things Lady Ain't Gonna Do this week is vote shame or vote abstain. So look, I've been watching all the commentary, and as Michelle Obama said, it is what it is, girl, but it doesn't have to be. I'm a big proponent of getting out there and showing these folks what you're made of. Some of us don't believe that the state is redeemable in any way. I get it. Some of us believe that politics is so corrupt that it's a fairy tale that your vote actually matters. I get that too. I understand why people don't want to vote or aren't sure. I am going to keep trying to make the case around why I think abstaining ain't the way to go, especially at this particular moment in time. Let me just get biological for a minute. I mean, some of us have periods, right? Okay, so think about abstention like this. And in this case, abstention also includes 
voting third party unless it's like the working families party or something. And I can break that down on another episode. But let's talk about abstention and let's talk about periods. So here's the deal. Those of us who have periods, abstention is like having a period and doing nothing to collect what you're shedding. Not to just get weird with it, but I'm just going to go directly to the heart of the matter. It's like not using a tampon, no cup, no pad, no thinks, no nothing. You're just letting yourself bleed and then doing nothing about it. It's getting all over your clothes. It's ruining stuff. It's making you uncomfortable. You got cramps. It's impacting your health. You know you could stop it, but you don't. You might even be out here like, I hate my period, so I'm just going to act like it's not there. And I want to say to you, with love and care and honesty and humility, you're not dealing with things as they are. You're dealing with them as you want them to be. Our work is to close the gap between where we are and where we want to be. But I swear to you, abstention in this moment is just like not using a sanitary product when you're on your period. You're bleeding now. That's Trump and his people. They are your period. And you, you won't keep that from going all over the place because you don't like periods. You feel me? I mean, like Michelle Obama, I hate politics. Seriously, really, and truly. I hate politics so much that I'm working to help build a viable alternative right here in California as a part of a larger national effort. But I'm also clear that thing that we're building, it's not viable right now. So it's time to go get a tampon or a pad and handle business. I don't believe in canceling people if they don't participate. I think that's weird. I definitely will look at you side-eyed come November if we still have this dictator in place. But frankly, rather than giving you the side-eye, I would rather be spending my time organizing the people who want to be heroes in their own stories, not firmly rooted in their own defeat. You don't get people to vote by shaming them into it. Tap into what's happening and move from there. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. And also, please vote. (laughs) Okay, let's go on to the things Lady loves this week, and there are quite a few. Number one, one thing I want more of this week, speaking of Michelle Obama, Lady really, really, really loved her this week. Like, really, really. Look, Michelle Obama is the epitome of lots of things that I love. Grace, elegance, style. She gives me mama energy times 10, and she certainly gives me elements of my own mom. Yes, indeed, I was raised by a Black woman not unlike Michelle Obama. Her speech was next-level important because it made it super clear what time it is. It was the first time I really heard her address Black Lives Matter. I appreciated her clarity on what she meant when she said, when they go low, we go high, because y'all, whew, I appreciated it because some of y'all like to sanitize things unnecessarily so that you feel more comfortable. Kind of like what y'all do with MLK and nonviolence, but maybe that's another thing for another show. (laughs) In any case, Michelle Obama was the star of the convention this week. As of this taping, it's not over yet, but I'm just going to go ahead and call it for what it is. (laughs) Other things Lady loves this week is the shy. Y'all, I need need a shy support group because I, I just, damn. Damn, damn, man. Like, what the fuck? Emmett, 
Okay, let's talk about Emmett for a second. He's such a sweetheart, but he's definitely not the brightest star in the sky. Keisha and Kevin have the most adorable relationship, and it reminds me of the one between me and my brother. Contentious, but kind when it matters. And it really mattered in this episode. This one took me back to when my mom died two years ago. My baby brother was there with me and for me every single step of the way. And Ronnie blood. I just, I don't have words yet. I don't have words yet. I don't have words yet. Yeah, we'll come back to it. Let's talk about other things Lady Loves this week, which includes Channy Nicholas's horoscopes. This week, my friend and a former guest on Lady Take No podcast, Channy Nicholas, released some horoscopes for the new moon. Let's be clear, you will remember from our episode with her that she already done told us that the astrology from September through the election, like literally ending the day of the election, is bananas and shit is finna be really hard. So basically, this is the new moon before the shit hits the fan. It's a good time to set intentions, get your house in order, pack your go bag, level up on your emergency kit, set your strategy, and count your blessings. You can catch Chani's horoscopes for the new moon all over our socials. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about how much I love, 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 love Lovecraft Country with my sister, Journey Smollett. It is absolutely incredible. And also, can we just talk about how much we go need this roster of shows to get us through this election season? More please and thank you. I cannot thank you enough. I cannot thank you enough for making time for us today. How do people get in touch with you and involved on the socials? I think Instagram, freefromdot.org, freefrom.org. Twitter, freefromorg. I'm very I'm very uh, green with my Twitter game. I recently <laughs> okay. learned what subtweeting was. It was not what I thought it was. <laughs> Um, And our website's freefrom.org. But thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. And maybe next time, both me and Chani come on together. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh. I bet you (laughs) Phil would be so excited. I'm stoked. I'm already like, can we weave these things together? We don't have to. We can have a conversation. I'll bring the tea. Excellent. All right, so that is it for Lady Don't Take No. But I will be back here every single Friday morning to accompany you where you used to have a commute. We appreciate you joining us, and let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind, tell us what you like, and tell us what you just ain't gonna do. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Facebook at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. We post ways to do something about the things that you hear on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is Bilaterics. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, voting is harm reduction. Do it for yourself so you can live to fight another day. 
Michelle Obama did not come to play with y'all children today. White supremacists steal because they know they can't win outright. That's how we got this thing called America. And also, set your new moon intentions now because you go need them things real soon. Shit is about to get real. That's right. I said it because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no. She insists don't respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. She won't speak less of something worse. Saying don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Never luxurious. Carries herself like the cutest, most courteous. Love y'all.